0: Let me just pray right now for our time together. Uh, Father, I do thank you for the privilege of standing before my brothers and sisters and being able to bring your word. And your word is powerful. Uh, it is, your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. Your word will accomplish the purpose for which it has been sent. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would use me as a messenger of your word this morning that we would all uh, hear from you, Lord, that we would be convicted uh, but encouraged uh, by what your word says, particularly as that relates to our unity, our oneness uh, that we enjoy as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray for clarity for my words. I pray for, uh, again, the ability to encourage most of all my brothers and sisters. And so I pray these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I thought that we'd begin uh, this morning by looking at some famous, or perhaps infamous, last wishes. The first uh, involves Leona Helmsley. How many of you know who Leona Helmsley is? A lot of hands, okay. Uh, Some refer to uh, the American businesswoman Leona Helmsley as the Queen of Mean. But her dog would disagree Helmsley died at the age of 87 and her will was made public. In her will, she provided quite nicely for her dog, Trouble, creating a $12 million trust to ensure that the Maltese lives out the rest of her life in the luxury that she had no doubt become accustomed to. I know everybody knows who Gene Roddenberry is, uh, the creator of the Star Trek TV Phenomenon. Well, <clears throat> he loved space so much that his last wish uh, was to be cremated and sent into space. And so that final wish was honored, and he was carried into space on a Spanish satellite in nineteen seventy, 1997. And his ashes were shot into the atmosphere as the satellite orbited the Earth. And uh, his wife died uh, and her ashes were joined to his ashes 10 years later. Finally, there is uh, Samuel Bratt, whose last wishes were to get even with his wife, <laughs> who never allowed him to smoke cigars. When he died in 1960, the embittered Bratt returned the favor. He left his wife 330,000 <clears> pounds, which British pounds, brit uh, which today would be we go through inflation and all that other stuff about nine million dollars if my calculations are correct but to get the nine million dollars she had to smoke five cigars a day for the rest of her life <clears throat> in john 17 we read what could be described as jesus's last wishes as expressed in what is known as his high priestly prayer and <clears throat> these the words that we're about to read were the last words that he prayed uh, with his disciples in that upper room before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we all know what happened there. Now, we're going to dive in over halfway through the prayer at verse 20, but before I do that, I want to briefly summarize what he's prayed up to this point. Um, in verse 1 to 5, Jesus is acknowledging to his Father that he's accomplished the work that he had come to do. He prayed that the Father would be glorified uh, through his passion. Then in uh, verses 6 to 19, he prays for the 11 remaining disciples. He prays for their protection. He prays for their joy, and he prays for their sanctification. And then finally, in verses 20 to 26, we're not going to do all six verses there, but for the first three, 20 to 23, Jesus is praying for his church. So let's pick up and read in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. In your bulletins, you'll see that the first point of this morning is that Jesus prays for our oneness. Now, he prays for our oneness, if you look through there, three times. Actually, he prays that oneness a fourth time prior in verse 11, where he's praying more specifically for the disciples. But he is praying four times in this prayer for the oneness um, of his people. It's worth noting that repeated words are important words, especially when they are the final words of the Son of God. So this should be a a light bulb moment for us, uh, this concern that Jesus has for our oneness. We think about all the things, particularly today, in the way that we think about church, there's a lot of things that we could probably relate to better that he could have prayed for. He could have prayed, you know, Lord, our God, Father, help the churches have enough money. Um, God, uh, help the pastors to do a good job teaching your word. Uh, Father, uh, help them to find the right meeting place. There's a lot of things we can think of that maybe we could relate to better that he could have prayed. But instead, Jesus' focus in this prayer is on what is truly important, not only <clears throat> pardon me, from an eternal perspective, For indeed, the oneness that he's praying for will ultimately be achieved when we are in heaven, because the oneness he's praying for is for his whole church, from beginning of time to the end of time, of which, of course, we are one part. And the body here at Christ Central is, you know, one local church, part of the universal church. But even the unity that we would strive for here is something that will be fulfilled ultimately uh, in heaven when we are there together. Um, But it's also a very important part of practical daily life. That this point of view of oneness is very important to how we um, live as members of the body of Christ. And so what is this oneness? The oneness that he is talking about is is unity. The word, Greek word for one there is heis, H-E-I-S, which means one as opposed to many. But it also means uh, unified, unified in common purpose, outlook, goals, intentions, and love. And today, <clears throat> when we look, just as a, to, to kind of make the point a little more clearer by juxtaposing it with what we're all painfully familiar with in our country right now, there is no unity in this country, hardly anymore, particularly in the political, echelons. There is no unity. So what do we see? We see the destruction of individuals. We see destruction of institutions. We see destructions, or I should say, destruction of communities when there is no unity. And so unity is very, very important for daily life. The model for our unity that Jesus gives is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. If you look there at verse 21, Jesus prays that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that sounds a little bit funny, uh, a way, of, kind of an unusual way maybe to talk about the unity that he has with the Father. But God the Father and God the Son are two distinct persons. We know that the Trinity is made up of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three distinct, but one God. And so their unity, though, does not erase their individuality. Okay, one way of looking, just a simple way of summarizing uh, the individuality in the Trinity, you know, God the Father makes the plan. God the Son executes the plan, and God the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ in executing that plan in our lives. Of course, it's not quite that distinct. They all work together all the time, but that's a simple way of looking at the individuality that exists between the the Godhead. But so close still, even with that individuality, So close are they that Jesus describes them as being in each other. They are in each other, even though they still have separate responsibilities. So what does that oneness, this unity, this inness that God the Father and God the Son share look like for us practically? First, I would say that unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is counterfeit unity, and we see uniformity in the church in a lot of areas. Not particularly, I don't mean our church here, but church in, you know, quote, church, big church, church is big church. That um, there's a lot of uniformity going on, not unity. Okay, and so the unity that we share does not seek to discard our differences on things that are not clearly set out forth in Scripture, you know choices that we make about, well, do I drink wine or not? Do I go to public school, private school, home school? Um, do I live a, a more wealthier type lifestyle or a you know a more average lifestyle? I mean, all these choices that we make, um, how we dress, the kind of food we eat, where we go on vacation, these are all things that are unique to us individually that are not in and of themselves wrong. And in fact, they are a part of who God has made us to be. That is critical to the unity that he is building in his church. The word that Jesus is using for oneness here in verse 21 is the same word that Paul uses for oneness in Romans twelve four to 5 It's not in your bulletin, but I'll read it to you. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. I brought with me a tool that those that were in my Sunday school class, yeah, Guy is laughing a little bit, are intimately familiar with. And um, I think it's a really good analogy for unity, what unity looks like in the church. Paul uses the body, but I couldn't take my arm off and pull out my heart and all the other stuff, so I thought this would be a little bit easier and uh, maybe not as um, unusual in the wrong way. But anyway, uh, what you see here with this wall, I would say, is unity, okay? This is a wall. If you look at it, there are lots of different shapes to the bricks, different colors, different placements. And the reality is, is that it's really an unbreakable wall. I mean, I can sit here and try to pull it apart, and I can't pull it apart because all of the pieces go together in such a way that each piece is strengthened by the other pieces. Okay, so that's the way our unity is with church, is that even though we're different, different ideas, different thoughts about things, um, that is a part of what God uses to help to bring us together, and I'll explain that more in a little bit. But it's easy, I think at times, to think, well, this is all I am. I am just this little piece, and I have no place, I have no role, I have no purpose I can't speak like Nathan. I can't sing like Melanie and Jeff. Um, I have no purpose for what I'm doing. And so when we just think about ourselves in that respect, apart from the bigger picture, those are the conclusions wrong that we can make. Another uh, error that we can fall into is just, again, being uniform. And you uh, We've all done it with Legos growing up, built walls where we've taken the same shaped pieces and stacked them up and put them right next to each other, and they fall over because they have no strength. There's no differentiation, no other parts to connect to them that make them strong where they are weak. And so the unity that God has given us uh, is, is one that does respect our individuality, the things that are different about us, and we need to remember that. But how does oneness, how is oneness formed? And I would suggest to you that oneness, this is not a big surprise, is formed through relationships. Um, John Wesley said there's nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. And so coming on Sunday mornings, attending church activities, men's game, uh, men's night, women's fellowship; those are great starts, uh, but by themselves, they're merely shells through which that unity really should blossom. Relationships should connect there, and we begin to get into each other's lives. So, the oneness that we after that we're after uh, should be transformational, and that's part of the problem. Is that I think a lot of people expect. That because they come to church and they participate in the activities that my life's going to change. And praise God by his grace and mercy, sometimes we do experience a little bit of change. But there's something bigger, again, going back to Jesus' prayer, the big picture of Jesus' prayer about our relationship. There's something bigger that he's doing that, uh, that includes our own personal transformation. But that transformation doesn't happen in isolation from other people's transformation, And so what does transformation, what does it take for transformation to happen? I'm going to give you three things. You can write these down. There's more, but because of time, I'm limiting my comments to three that I think are particularly potent. First is uh, for oneness to be transformational, there needs to be intentional relationships. Uh, Notice that I use the adjective intentional rather than deep. The reason for that is that we all want to be about deep relationships. So we say, oh, I'm going to have a deep relationship with someone. Then we go and we, you know, go to people and we can try to go deeper than we should be going. Or maybe we're ready, but they're not. And so we, the wall goes up and we end up our own worst enemy in trying to accomplish that end. However, how you get to deep, not by being deep, by being intentional. Because you don't get deep usually right off. You get deep by little comments, little uh, conversations, little activities over time. That's where the depth comes because it's over time you develop the trust to actually reveal the crud that's in our own hearts to people. Where we're really struggling is not going to come out because we go to an activity. It's going to come out because we've spent time with people. They trust us, we trust them, we can go deep. I mean, depth will come through that because that's how the spirit works. That leads to the second thing that uh, is required for transformational oneness, and that is a willingness to talk people through trials and suffering. I think a lot of times we want to stay away from that, in part because we don't really know what to say. We see people that are having a difficult time. We don't want to say the wrong thing. And it's good that we're, we're careful about that, but that should not keep us from seeking to engage them. But how much easier it is to engage when there is that relationship there where people see that even when we feel like we've said the wrong thing the wrong way or whatever, they love us. They know that we love them and we can work through any kind of miscommunications, But trials and suffering are where we live. I don't know about you. I don't grow a whole lot in Christ when things are going great. We all know this, that we grow more when we're under the the pressure. And that particularly involves the trials and the suffering. So our relationships have to embrace that. And that's ugly, it's messy, but we shouldn't be afraid of it. I'm going to give a reason for that here in a minute. But the third thing that I would say we should pursue for our oneness to be transformational is committing to people that we would probably not otherwise spend time with. It's very easy to look for people like us and to just spend time with them as opposed to looking for all the other people that are not like us and uh, i I will attest that the the greatest growth in my own life has come from people that I would have probably have not otherwise spent time with but I started to spend time with them and then I saw uh, that God was using me there and that God was using them in my own life and uh, two people that I have uh, been a shepherd over are very introverted. I'm extroverted person. And, uh, you know, as John, uh, my pastor back in Richmond says, he goes, Eric, all I got to do with you is push play. (laughs) So there's no, you know, I I'll talk, but, but God put in my life, these two brothers who dear brothers, but very introverted, very reserved. And, uh, and so, you know, God was using my extrovertedness to be able to pull them out and to get them to, to talk to other people, but he was also using them in my life to help me learn how to draw a person out and to really understand what they're thinking rather than looking at a situation thinking, well, this is the problem and this is what you need to do to fix it. Because so often we all know that the presenting problem, what we think the problem is, is not the real problem. The real problem is deeper and it takes relationships to get to that to that depth, intentional relationships, I would say. So when you stop about when you stop and you think about your relationship with the church, how much energy you know are you are we um, focusing on the unity, on developing unity in our church with one another? Do we pray for unity? Do we really strive? Or are we really intentional about forming relationships with other people, particularly people that are not like us? So the next point is going to tell you what you really need to know about how to function in these situations, how to build these relationships. Jesus tells us how. Thankfully, he doesn't say, <clears throat> I want you to be one, do it. Okay? Jesus shows great love and understanding and compassion for our weaknesses here. In verse 22, which is the second point, Jesus makes our our oneness possible. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Intentional relationships are possible. On a practical everyday life level, because Jesus has already done what needed to be done. He has given us his glory. What is this glory? The glory that he has given us is often described, okay, we've got to get deep in some theology here, <clears throat> is often described as his moral perfection, his righteousness. And the work of Christ was to restore us back to fellowship with God by justifying us, and then adopting us into his family. And through his spirit, uh, we have been given a new identity in Christ that includes every spiritual blessing, which really begins with, and the context of every blessing is the moral perfection of Christ, his righteousness, what he is, what he has accomplished. Well, Jesus is saying that he has given this to us that we are already recipients of what he has given. And this is what we tend to forget in the church often, is that we just get busy doing the things that we know we're supposed to do without starting where we're supposed to start, where Scripture starts, if you... Genesis to Revelation, you see that scripture begins with God telling us who he is and all that he's done, including all the things that he's done for us in Christ. The indicative, all that that he's done is always the foundation out of which we are to obey him, the imperative, the commands. So that we do it by being satisfied with him, we do it out of satisfaction so that we do it for his glory rather than us trying to build a righteousness that we've already been given. And that's what destroys so many relationships, I think, is that we look at relationships as a way of building our righteousness. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to say the right thing. And then when the person doesn't do what we want them to do, that's when we get into trouble. That's when there's conflict, and that's when churches fall apart. But Jesus is saying, I've given you what you need. And it is our first job as Christians to be happy in Jesus every day. That's where we begin. It is dwelling on this work that Christ has done for us, our new identity in him, our righteousness, our joy, our victory, that we're conquerors, all these riches that he's given us that Nathan's been talking about in his series on Ephesians. That is the foundation because it's as we dwell on that, as we act on that, as we confess and repent because of that, that the love of God becomes a fountain in us out of which we show that love to other people. And I would encourage you to read 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians five fourteen 14 to 20, later today. And to see Paul talked beautifully about how it was the love of Christ that compelled him in his ministry, which he talks about first by saying, this love that I, that I have seen in Christ was given to me by making me a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Part of the new has come is that I have a ministry of reconciliation. I am an ambassador for Christ. That's what we are. And we cannot be ambassadors to each other without first finding our joy in Jesus and all that he has done for us by virtue of his life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus makes our oneness possible. Third and final point. The purpose of our oneness is missional. Now, obviously, I believe that oneness is an end in and of itself. Okay, I think that that's a good thing. So I'm not trying to say that it's only missional here by stating it this way. But these are the words that Jesus uses. In fact, he gives us two Uh, missional purposes when we look at verse 23, which verse 23 is just a repeat. You see the repeat again of verse 21, which says in verse 23, then the world will know, okay, so the oneness, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So our first uh, purpose is Our first missional purpose is that um, the world will see that God sent Jesus. Now consider that there's a sense in which what what Jesus is saying here is that he's staking his reputation to the world on our oneness as his church. That's that's pretty deep (laughs) when you think about that, that our oneness is, is what he says is going to prove to the world that he came. I mean, so it's like his purpose, all of his work is seen by the world through the lens of our oneness. In the second mention uh, of... uh, In verse 23, the second missional purpose you see there, that the world would also know that the, uh, the Father's love for his people... Okay, so the second purpose of our oneness is that the people will know. People will know the Father's love. In his book, On *The Mark of a Christian*, you all are familiar with Francis Schaeffer. I'm sure he comments: without true Christians loving one another, Christ says, the world cannot be expected to listen. Even when we give proper answers, let us be careful, indeed, to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. If the world does not see this, it will not believe that Christ was sent by the Father. That sort of puts a whole different perspective uh, on oneness, doesn't it? You know, that oneness is not about even our individual growth in Christ, although it is, but that ultimately there's this ultimate purpose to our oneness that's evangelistic, that is missional, that is critical, really, to the work that we as the church and our oneness should be doing. <clears throat> I want to conclude with kind of an abrupt Uh, application which is the form of a question or a challenge i want to lay out and that is simply this choose one person uh, in the church that you may not know or that maybe you have known in the past but you know the connection has kind of waned a little bit and uh, just call them up and say let's get together for coffee tell me i want to hear your story I'm telling you, people are intensely interesting when you really want to listen to what they have to say about who they are and what their life is like. I mean, it is fun listening to people. I, I love it. I love listening to people tell their story. I'm having lunch with Ron Nix on Tuesday. Hopefully it won't go too long because then I'm going to end up running over my time with Nathan. But I am excited about meeting with Ron Nix and hearing Ron Nix's story about his life, about what God's doing in his life. And so I would encourage, you know, this is an encouragement to all of us, just this week, think of one person that you don't know very well. Maybe it's even a person that you have known well. Maybe things didn't go too great and there's a little bit of discontinuity between you to go back to them and say, let's just have coffee. Let's get together and talk. And really be intentional about making that invitation. And then in the conversation, letting God's spirit lead in terms of where it goes from there. You know, maybe you decide, you let's get together for coffee again. Let's meet for lunch. Come on over, you know, to my house for dinner. uh, You know, and let's set a date in the next two weeks or the next four weeks. And just let, just be intentional about just trying to form a relationship with that one person. Father, I do thank you and praise you again for your word. Thank you for Jesus and all that he's done uh, to <clears throat> apply the truth or, or to say, to make possible the Spirit's application of truth in our lives. And so I pray that you would bind us together as one, Lord, evermore, not just for our own growth and transformation, Lord, but for the growth and transformation of those who you would yet call um, to yourself through this, this local body. We pray these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.